From climate change, to DEI and social justice, to economic inequality and workers' rights, a range of global challenges are at the forefront of people's minds. As we emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic, business leaders are looking for guidance on how to respond, how to do better not just for their shareholders, but for their people, their planet, and the broader communities they're a part of. There's no shortage of ideas on what is needed, but very few companies have succeeded in putting those ideas into practice. As part of Intentional Futures' own stakeholder-centered strategy initiative, CEO Michael Dix is embarking on a journey, a series of conversations with business leaders on what's to be done. Join us as we hunt for the how. Chris, I'm excited to have Allison Omens join us today. Allison is Chief Strategy Officer for Just Capital, which is a nonprofit working to align the actions that corporate America takes with the American public's priorities. And in that role, Allison is responsible for setting and implementing strategy, engaging with companies, investors, foundations, and nonprofits. Through her work, Allison focuses squarely on figuring out how to know when organizations are living up to their promises around stakeholder capitalism and what sort of best practices should become common practices in order to build a more inclusive economy. And her current initiatives focus on three intersecting areas, how companies prioritize workers and wages, how they advance racial equity in the workplace and how they support their stakeholders through the pandemic. So lots to talk about here with Allison. Thank you for joining us, Allison. Thanks for having me, excited to be here. Well, uh, you and I first met at a workshop uh, about six months ago uh, that was exploring the potential for a good jobs index, with the idea being that could help raise the bar on how companies treat and serve their employees. And that led to a conversation you and I had about stakeholder-centered strategy, which I just keep coming back to in my mind. It was just uh, really informative and, and, and rich. Um, but before we get into all of that stuff, maybe you could start by just telling us about Just Capital and the work that you do there. Sure, happy to. Just Capital is a nonprofit, as you noted. Um, we were founded, depending on who you ask at what moment, um, between seven and nine years ago. Um, we were founded uh, in the post-Occupy, post-Tea Party, early days of populism, really seeing that people felt disconnected from the actions of corporate America and the market overall. And so we were founded with the idea, we were founded by Paul Tudor Jones, Deepak Chopra, Ariana Huffington, and a number of others. And the idea was to bridge that gap between what people were looking for and what actions companies were prioritizing. And, um, you know, obviously recognizing that there's a lot of trust breakdown and obviously we're seeing that across society. And actually there's an interesting conversation there around how business leaders are seen as more trustworthy than, than other parts. But um, we were founded to begin to address that trust gap and really think about how do we re-incentivize and realign um, how companies are acting with what people think they should be doing. And so we do a couple things fundamentally. We extensively poll Americans and ask what they think companies should be doing. Um, consistently, year over year, the top things people care about is how a company treats its workers. But more broadly, what they care about is how a company sort of thinks holistically and operates holistically around 
an investment in workforce, in their workforce, um, an investment in relationship with communities, um, environmental practices, yes, making profits and being a successful company. Um, and so through that work, the extensive polling, we're then um, gathering publicly available data to try and understand what's actually happening within companies and how they perform relative to one another. Uh, we're creating indices and products, financial products um, with that data. And then we're also creating programmatic and other types of initiatives and partnerships to be using that research and sort of benchmarking to really be driving change within companies um, and driving capital towards those companies. There's a there's a, a you know a, something that's happening in real time, which is sort of this narrative shift and re-recognition of what business leadership means in this day and age. Um, and that's around the pandemic, it's around uh, racial equity, uh, it's around sort of long-term growth. And so we're part of that movement is, is trying to say, we need to be thinking about what performance is in a different way. And, you know, gathering the data, understanding what it looks like, and then celebrating CEOs and other financial and sort of market executives who are willing to stand up and say, no, I believe this is good for my business. And I also believe that it's good for my stakeholders. And that's an important part of how I'm measuring my success. It's so fascinating to listen to you rattle off like there are a number of priorities that just are important for the American public. And what you listed, I was, just, I was listening and thinking to myself, but isn't that what companies are currently doing? So how big is this gap? Because I'd love to understand what that looks like so that we can understand better what you and Jess are actually doing to bridge that gap. It's such a great question. Um, the Business Roundtable, which is this big group of organizations, or big, big uh, Washington-based group that's made up of the largest companies in the U.S., headquartered in the U.S., but sort of all over the world, um, they put out this new statement of purpose, um, is what they called it, about uh, August 2019, so um, almost... I can't even do the math in real time, two and a half years ago. And um, they sort of said that the that that the purpose of business is to be serving stakeholders, including performance and financial metrics, but but sort of broadly. And there was this really interesting range of reactions of um you know, wow, this is huge, you know, sort of the obvious skepticism from some corners. But what a lot of business leaders said, including those that signed the statement was, this is what we're already doing. And so there certainly is that range even today of what people are saying these businesses are doing this versus those that say this is where it needs to go. You know, our assessment is somewhere in the middle, to be honest. We're also looking at a relative range. So what I'm, you know, very able to talk to you about and sort of tell you is which companies are the best across the, the thousand largest publicly traded companies in the U.S. That's what we're looking at. But I also think that... Um, you know, the last couple of years has generated this new expectation about what best looks like and that the sort of relativity is no longer enough. We're also looking for what is the next, you know, the next step on climate progress? What's the next step on an investment in workers? Uh, what's the next step on a commitment to real equity? And that's part of what we as an organization are starting to do deeper dives on. Um, but I also think it's sort of where, um, 
where we're headed, you know, overall sort of economically and societally is, is asking what does leadership mean for the future? And that, you know, it's a, it's a very TBD. I sort of joke that I think we're at like maybe the you know top of the third inning in terms of where we are with this progress um, and where we are with this dialogue. We're still very far, but like fundamentally to your question, Chris, I think that, um, it is what businesses do inherently is managing to their stakeholders, but sort of naming it, measuring it, looking at strategy through that lens can give you a different picture than you would if you did not do that. I find that it must be an interesting like pull push and trying to figure out like how to proceed with what's next and what's next when like this thinking, maybe I'll call it default thinking if you will, because I heard you talk about a shift in leadership is so pervasive. So I, I worked, for example, for 10 years at a wonderful healthcare organization. Um, and, and I think in many organizations, um, especially healthcare, which is nonprofit, you'll hear this mantra, you know, no profit, no mission. And so when things get tough, I think about like 2007 to 2011, things get tough. And the thinking is still so much about like, we want to be patient centered, we care about our employees. But what happens is there's a focus on revenue generation. And you see that come out in a lot of pervasive ways as opposed to being able to stay focused on realizing a purpose that generates wins for our stakeholders and being focused more on value creation. And so that tug between focusing on revenue generation and focusing on value creation, they almost, when they come out of someone's mouth, can sound like the same thing, but how you go about it is so different. Are you are you seeing that too? Yeah, it's, it's uh, there's so much within your question. Overall, um, Ideally, and part of what we are trying to tease out is where is the overlap? What is the Venn diagram between those two things, right? That that value creation um, in the long term, so part of it does come down to time horizons, should be about generating revenue and long-term growth for the organization. And, um, you know, there are some examples to that. One, and BlackRock, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, just came out with his annual letter talking about a lot of interesting things, but one of them is, is climate. And that in the long term, if executives are not now thinking about the impact that climate change is going to have on their business, they're going to be in a lot of trouble in a decade or two. Um, and that used to be a, an easy case to make or an easier case to make for insurance, for example, but it wasn't true across industries. And increasingly, that is what's coming to pass is sort of regardless of where in the market you're sitting, you know that if you're not planning for it now and spending money now so that you're in a good place later, so you're in a resilient place later, that um, you just need to be doing that, right? Um, what's interesting in the last year or even less is that putting money in now to your workers, whether that's wages, uh, you know, Bank of America's out just today, um, which, you know, at the end of January on transferring, um, announcing that they're going to be giving stock options to their workers, 97% of their workforce, including their frontline workers. That's a, an investment. That's an investment saying, we're not just going to give you cash bonuses. We want you to have more equity in the company. We want you to stay here for a long time. So those are all things that, um, those are all things that we sort of need to be measuring and that we need to be um, aligning so that your your underlying question does get there um, or, you know, does we get to a point where um, those things are connected. But I agree that there are really serious trade offs and it would be naive to sort of say that there aren't. 
There's so much to dig into here. I wonder if it would be helpful to start taking a little bit of a step back, Allison, and hear how you think about your theory of change as an organization. Because my understanding from the outside in a couple of conversations is, you know, you're sort of part, uh, you generate accountability and shine a light on organizations and measure them and stack rank them. You're champion, championing uh, those who have best practices and are doing a great job. So celebrating them and kind of hopefully inspiring others to pursue that. And maybe there's an emerging bit of teaching others how to actually then uh, better implement and improve their score. And that maybe that's a virtuous cycle. And you're, and you're doing this all while keeping your finger on the pulse of what the American public wants, which is going to be dynamic and shifting over time. And there's so much challenge in that. Maybe you could talk a little bit about maybe the presumptions you had as an organization early on, and then how you found your way in the marketplace to actually have impact yourselves. Sure. The first um, sort of assumption that we made is that there was not enough data around performance on stakeholder issues. And it wasn't being gathered and assessed in a way that allowed anyone, whether another business leader, a worker, a consumer, an investor, to be able to compare apples to apples, um, which is an important thing because if you can't do that, you do have the sort of you know greenwashing accusations or this idea of marketing as opposed to actual action. So that was the first assumption was that we needed data and we needed measurement and comparison points to be able to um, show which companies were doing well and which companies were not doing well compared to their peers or competitors. The second is that people want this information. Again, regardless of which stakeholders are, you know, just capital stakeholders, I'll try not to confuse this, confuse it further, but um, that an investor um, wants to know which companies are better on climate, which companies are better on human capital or workers issues. That if you're a millennial worker or anyone that you want to seek out companies that um, are are actually walking the talk when it comes to and that was your second initial assumption. You're that was the second initial assumption. The first is that we need the benchmarking. The second is that people are actually going to use it. And then the third is that those two things will lead to a race to the top. And I think that all of those things, for the most part, have really borne themselves out. I mean, when we were started, ESG was was sort of a niche idea. Um, I remember learning about it in grad school and having to like look up what ESG meant, which was eight or nine years ago. So like it's changed quite a bit. It changed quite rapidly. Um, and and so part of the um, so part of what we've seen is this growth of obviously the great resignations for this concept of workers really leaving companies that aren't showing this commitment. Um, have all begun to borne that out. And then the, the, the sort of next step in the theory of change, which is which is a more recent one, is that companies um, don't know what to do, even given this sort of broad understanding of where they're where they're going. And so what we are increasingly doing now is creating um, programs and sort of other ways to partner with companies and, and connect companies with nonprofits on specific topics. Um, that 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 where people do want to invest in and sort of advance their leadership on the topic. And so, you know, that depends for the business. One of the things I'm asked a lot about is, is how do you decide where to, where to focus? And there is a real expectation, both actually from the public as well as, um, you know, sort of business strategy is you want to align what both what you're 
individual sort of business purpose is, along with um, what your organizational strategy is, um, to find sort of what that sweet spot is to be investing in. That if it's, you know, if you sort of announce an initiative that's not at all connected to the business, it feels it's going to be hard to implement and it feels um, uh, not connected to the overall uh, business brand. But those are all things that you sort of um, that, that people are grappling with in real time. Awesome. I mean, I, what, maybe you could talk about some of the just getting into the measurement side of things. How much can you divine now through data? So how, how much progress have you made in your ability to actually from outside in understand how well an organization is delivering on its promises to the marketplace and the core ideas of stakeholder capitalism? And where are the gaps? Where is it still opaque? We have made a lot of progress and we have much, much further to go. <laughs> um, so, you know, a couple years ago, um, there was, the disclosure has changed quite a bit. And again, we're, we're focused on public disclosure. So what a company is putting in their CSR report, their 10K, um, in news reports. Um, it used to be, I remember talking to a company um, when I first started just around five years ago, and I was talking to them around um, about uh, paid time off policies and saying, this is something that we're tracking because it's it's one of the key things people care about is, is flexibility and having paid sick leave and everything else, which, you know, at this moment is like hard to conceive that you wouldn't have considered it. But then it was like um, the 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 company representative said, I, I've never been asked this before. Um, yes, we can disclose it. I don't see any reason that we can't, but I'm going to have to go through my internal processes. And it's the first time I've ever been asked this before. So things have changed quite a bit in terms of um, what kinds of things uh, companies are putting out. That's particularly true for environmental data um, and, uh, and climate data in particular. Uh, obviously, companies like Microsoft and others have, have really um, made some significant progress and commitments over the last couple of years. The human capital and worker data, which is um, often is is by far um, the least disclosed. It's often one of the reasons uh, people say they don't want to is because it's connected to competitive advantage. Um, but we we did a report a couple months ago on looking at the state of um, of disclosure on this topic, and we looked at core workforce uh, questions of composition, full time, part time contractor workforce. We looked at wages and compensation. We looked at um, equity, diversity, equity, and inclusion numbers. We looked at opportunities for advancement, internal mobility, a couple of a couple of additional different frames. And there was almost universal non-disclosure, except in a few areas that it was better. So one was DEI, which is unsurprising given the last year and a half. We've seen real movement on companies being more willing to uh, disclose their internal uh, demographic numbers. Um, you know, including sort of across uh, at every level of management um, and any every man a level of worker. Um, and so, you know, associated with uh, George Floyd's murder and sort of along this this trend line of what we've seen, there is now more risk associated with companies not disclosing this kind of information because it's a signal that they're taking it seriously. And so they know that they have to do more on other topics 
there's still in a lot of companies mind more risk with disclosing than not disclosing. And so that risk equation is, um, is very, uh, uh, sort of in movement, <laughs> um, where a couple years ago, it was risky for anything before this, for example, I was, um, I was working in the Obama administration and we were working on, um, pay equity assessment or asking companies to commit to doing a pay equity assessment. And even this was five, six years ago, there was a, a, a sort of nobody wanted to even commit to doing it. Or there was this, this fear of, of saying publicly that they were going to uh, uh, do a pay equity assessment because then they were going to have to do it and announce it and deal with it. And so that risk has changed in the last five years on pay equity on DNI. It's not there yet in terms of releasing wage data, releasing um, workforce composition data, releasing internal mobility numbers. And so that's what um, I see the trend line moving towards, given the state of the economy and how challenging it is to um, to hire and sort of all the things we know. So that's one that is is like in process, I think. But we really have seen um, significant changes and there's still a long way to go. It's interesting to hear you talk about that because I'd imagine, you know, as executives are trying to play out that equation, in order to build trust, you need to be transparent um, to some extent, right? But transparency alone isn't strong enough to build trust sometimes. So there has to be some authentic engagement in the, I guess you could say the value exchange with stakeholders, uh, doesn't there? I mean, it kind of comes back to, you're trying to piece together all these, all these different components you've been talking about, like purpose and, but also like getting clear on what we'd be transparent around and our commitments. Yeah, I, I, it's a, the trust and transparency bit is really interesting. Like, can you have one or without the other? I do believe, and we believe it just, that transparency is a really important part of building trust, but it is sort of the first and second step, not the end result. So part of, again, just to, to continue on the, the diversity and sort of demographic data, because it is a really interesting case study over the last couple of years. A lot of the conversations we have with companies is, if you want to be signaling that you have a commitment to equity, that you're seriously considering how to be addressing this topic, one step is to release your demographic data because you're showing that you wanna be transparent about where you are on this process. And then you're gonna keep updating it year after year and you're gonna share what initiatives you have underway to be thinking more about creating a diverse workforce and thinking more to ensure that your board is diverse, that your senior management is diverse. And those are all, um, those are all ways of you know, holding yourself accountable and that your stakeholders can hold you accountable for. But it's not the end result is that transparency. It's really about tracking over time and saying that you're willing to um, to share, you know, how the path is going, how the how the work is going. Um, so that's a lot of a lot of what we see is that it's not um, it's not the end result. And it's not even, you know, in the like from um, the early days after George Floyd was murdered, there was, um, you know, a lot of company questions asking, what do we do? And there were a lot of statements that came out. We've seen more recently 
a lot of workers, um, to a degree investors even, ask what has been done since those statements. And so it's sort of a good example of like early transparency, but if you don't have it under control in the long term, you're gonna end up being called to the carpet for it. And so there is like a degree of, of transparency is is maybe a way to buy yourself some time to do the work that's needed, but it's not gonna, it, it, it may make it worse if you don't have the things underneath actually address it. You're touching upon um, an important dynamic, which is transparency leads to making commitments, which then means you need to be, hold yourself accountable. You will be held accountable uh, ultimately for that. And thus it, you have to um, take action sufficiently. And in a sense, you're kind of measuring that. One of the complexities, I think, in the work you do that um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on is there are there are some standards you would expect of all companies to do this just to be a, a just company a good company um but there have to be important differences company by company say well what promises did you make and how well did you actually disclose how well you're doing on that and how much progress have you made um because the dimensions that reflect one company's promise and set of public commitments might be very different from another ones even in the same category so how do you wrestle with with that aspect? It depends on the topic. It depends what we're trying to measure. So in some cases, um, when we measure environmental impact, for example, we are looking, we are measuring and assessing a company's commitment to reduce net emissions, for example. And so what we're looking at is very specific things associated with, um, you know, have you, have you given a timeline? Um, have you announced by how much? Um, are you working with partners? Similarly, we assess uh, donations to, to communities, to nonprofits or other um, uh, uh, other organizations working in communities. And we say, you know, have you um, announced how much? Uh, have you announced which ones? Because that is the type of detail that allows someone to understand um, how committed you are, how willing to be transparent you are to assess over time, have your donations gone up or down? So it's, it, it's, they're not perfect signals, um, but you start to look at all of the questions of which companies have, have provided the level of detail. So, so which companies are best for women, for example, you know, at what level of you, uh, have you released your demographic data, gender and race and ethnicity? Um, you've announced that you have paid family leave. Have you announced how much? Have you announced how many people take advantage of it? Um, you've announced you've done a pay equity analysis. Have you announced um, what the results were? Have you announced how much it took to uh, change to address it. So, you know, if you've done all three of those things at the top level of transparency, that's a pretty decent indicator that you have the, the practices and sort of the systems underneath that are required to be addressing it. If you've, if you've said, you know, here's at the top line, what my breakdown is between men and women at a top line. Yes, I have paid family leave at a top line. Yes, I've done a pay equity analysis. I, as a whatever investor, consumer, worker, don't have the details to understand what's actually happening. And it makes me more skeptical or at least a little concerned about it. So that's some of the stuff that we try and tease out is looking at the level of granularity as a 
proxy, but a decent one of what are the systems and sort of operational practices that we believe give an indicator that 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 the company is serious. Maybe as a as a follow up, I wonder if you could talk about a company that uh, is at or near the top of your list consistently, and what is it about uh, their behaviors and commitments and level of transparency and progress over time that is most notable? Sure. Yeah, we have um, a, a number of companies at the top. Um, uh, Alphabet or Google this year is, is at the top of the list. Um, Microsoft is second. Um, we have Intel is another one. These tend to be tech companies, which are tend to be have better worker practices. So there is a consistency there. You know, Microsoft, I think, um, is is one I often cite because they have, for example, on, on the environment, they really have been a leader in all sorts of ways on getting to net zero or sort of their um, their uh, um, commitment to that. Um, intersectional environmental justice, even where they're thinking about how to be partnering with organizations that particularly understand and are trying to decrease the impact on, you know, low income communities and environmental practices. In the early days of the pandemic, Microsoft was one of the only companies that um, uh, ensured that their contractors were continuing to be paid when they closed their their shops, not just their employees. So they're thinking about, um, you know, their contractor workforce as well as their supply chains in really important ways. Um, just because I've been talking about diversity and demographic data a lot, one of my favorite stories about Intel is they released in 2019, the end of 2019, um, they're one of the only companies ever to do this, to release both their um, demographic data at every level of um, the company, as well as their uh, corresponding pay data. So you weren't just looking at the percentages or the numbers associated with where everyone is within the company, but you were also looking at the wage comparison there. And when they released it, there wasn't anyone saying these are the best numbers in the world. Wow, Intel's doing so great. It was Intel saying we have some work to do and we want to use this as a signal that we're going to do the work. Um, and so that's like those are the sort of practical examples that you begin to see of companies that might not have it, even the ones that are at the top of our list, like they might not have it all figured out. In fact, they would be the first ones to admit that they do not have it all figured out, but that they want to be pushing the bounds of what leadership is and want to be transparent about what they're trying to do to get there. Well, maybe we can yeah, jump in a little bit more because I was taking a look. I subscribed to your guys' newsletter. And so I was looking at like the 2021 issues that were out there. And I know that you were sorted by workers, community, shareholders, but top of the list workers was pays a fair living wage, right? And right below that, which was communities, it's creating jobs in the United States. And then there's a whole bunch that are connected around that, which paints a, a, a you know, I think a broader picture pet just past wage, but then I was taking a look at some of your initiatives, which I got really excited about the worker financial wellness initiative. Um, Cause I feel like we're, I would love to just like have our listeners hear more about that and what that entails. Cause it really starts to ground from this broad landscape into something that feels really more tactical in terms of what folks are doing as well. Sure. Um, so the Worker Financial Wellness Initiative is a project that we launched with PayPal a little over a year ago, as well as our nonprofit partners, the Good Jobs Institute and the Financial Health Network. 
PayPal, um, the CEO of PayPal, Dan Schulman, um, has this story where a couple years ago he's looking to ask, um, he, I think he's doing an internal town hall and he wants to just check on the financial health, make sure everyone um, is doing well, the employees of the company are doing well. So comes back with numbers, particularly for their call center workers and shows that um, over half of the workers are struggling every month. Um, and the you know compensation it's it's hard to keep up with savings um their unexpected expenses sort of the common story in the us today um but so he discovers that and realizes that they're you know that work needs to be done and so they undertake a series of um a series of sort of projects to better understand what that looks like but they end up increasing wages um changing uh the cost of health care giving workers giving workers equity giving them financial um financial wellness education programs as well and so really went like asked a question that he thought he knew the answer of came up with a different answer and then went to go address it. And so that's really the the idea of the Worker Financial Wellness Initiative inspired by PayPal is have you looked a uh, business leader to know if your workers are getting by every month and getting ahead. And the truth is we did this assessment at just about um, right before the pandemic, but that 50% of companies, um, of, of workers at the Russell 1000, the thousand largest publicly traded companies in the US were not making a living wage. So, you know, this idea of sort of bad jobs that might be in smaller businesses or sort of, you know, more of the, on the outskirts of the economy, actually the story is that these jobs are in many of the largest companies um, that we're seeing you know huge profits connected with or either way like all touching our lives in some way and so um we ask business leaders to assess through looking at a living wage assessment a financial health questionnaire so looking at sort of a worker's full financial life it's an employee engagement survey and a benefits assessment um to see what what uh, if people are making a living wage, which sort of despite it sounding aspirational is actually really are your wages or your compensation meeting your costs for the month. So it doesn't even include do you have any money that's left over to save. It's really fundamentally, you know, what's the cost of housing? What's the cost of your phone? What's the cost of food? Um, what's the cost of child care? And does that cover um, and do your wages cover that? So the living wage assessment, the benefits assessment, um, you know, do do people have enough money to have access to them, as well as that financial health assessment, and and the the underlying idea behind it is that anecdotally, like Dan Schulman, Mark Bertolini, the former CEO of Aetna, has a similar story, assuming everyone was doing fine and then looking and turns out that they're not. Um, there's this assumption. There's there's an assumption for us within that that. Um, the first step is to look. And once you look, you need that information as a business leader to know, and you can do with it what you will, but if workers are financially insecure, we know that there's a connection to productivity, absenteeism, retention, um, you know, all of the sort of fundamentals of um, productivity that are connected to business performance. And so 
Um, at the very least, we're asking executives to do that assessment to understand it, and then simultaneously doing case studies, creating community of practices for um, for organizational uh, representatives who want to be doing this work more, um, doing the connection to both investor and business performance, and really just trying to 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 change a story or to tell this story and sort of engage in this different way of thinking about assessment and what the value is attached to it. I, I So it's interesting because I was reading about it and thinking, okay, so you're moving from, you know, having people that are just maybe surviving to really thriving. I feel like more and more these days I'm seeing the word thriveability just show up um, in terms of how people are beginning to talk about um, just impact and kind of the purpose of business. But I think what struck me, and, and especially what you just shared too, is it's not just about um, wage, and we can call it living wage and what that means, because I think I read somewhere, and I might get the stat wrong, that 80% of Americans don't even have like $500 in their savings account. Like it's it's pretty scary. But it's more than that, which is why I was so struck by seeing that you were partnering with the Good Jobs um, in, uh, Institute and Initiative, is, and you just spoke to it. It's You're not necessarily talking about an initiative where folks are going to go out and maybe like just invest more money or increase wage, there's more around the operational side of things as well to make um, work more meaningful, but also translate into higher productivity, which creates more value, et cetera. Exactly. And yeah, it's it's not quite 80. It's it's a, a little bit less than half, but still like like half of America, it might be at, at, at 500 at $300, like a $3 emergency, $300 emergency. It's like over 40% of people can't afford it, which is just like, like truly mind blowing. Yeah, it's huge. And and like those are real, right? Like we all know as humans, that's the kind of thing that comes up all the time, especially where you have kids or elderly parents or are in a pandemic. Um, and so so right. So we know that these numbers are really connected to um how people show up at work. And the the underlying premise of of this initiative, as well as really what we do overall, is that workers bring value to the business. And workers, not just sort of the white collar, highly educated workers, but all workers are bringing value. And that's not just in their labor. It's also in the insights that frontline workers have. There are a number of stories over the last year, the last two years around um, one CEO, one of the major grocery chains recently was talking about how um, he hadn't expected, but got all of these insights from frontline workers at grocery stores around how to improve um, product, not productivity, but like how to improve customer service, um, especially as things have changed in the last two years. And that that was sort of a new insight for him. And so thinking about frontline workers um, as bringing, you know, value um, and, and consistency and, um, customer service to a workplace and that's of value. So, um, you know, Walmart has had a really interesting journey over the last decade or so, and they've talked about it. And actually, I think I've talked publicly about um, working with Zainab Tan, who's the founder of the Good Jobs Institute, that that there was a real recognition that an investment in workforce training, um, that an investment in operations leads to better customer outcomes and that they weren't hitting those marks and that they needed to. And so that that was a strategy shift for them, was thinking about how to be investing in workers as a as a um, 
as a way to be even more competitive. And I think that um, that's a lot of what we're, honestly, that's what we're seeing right now is like, turns out that if you're constantly having to fill these jobs, even if they're minimum wage jobs, there's a huge expense associated with that. And, you know, we're seeing hours decrease and we're seeing uh, stores shut down because people can't, you know, hold on to talent, which is now what we're calling folks. So there's just this, um, this real need, I think, to be, to, to have the mind shift, right? The mind, um, like I see real change in, in mindsets um, from what workers are and what they're bringing to business, even if they are not traditionally the ones that are, you know, at the top sort of um, identifying the big strategy moves. Like to me, it just brings us back to the very start of this conversation, right? Which is this context, I guess you can call it mindset, but context of um, people are a cost center. And so we're going to focus on revenue generation and try to cut cost as opposed to people generate and could generate continuous insight and organize around value. It still leads to, you know, revenue, but you're not leading with revenue. You're leading with value creation. And, and, and so they're just different places to come from. But I'd imagine, and we'll talk more about it maybe in a future podcast, what are the strategic operational choices then that need to be made? Because I know that there are trade-offs for sure to allow for that to happen as opposed to like, oh, just throw more money at people. Because um, we know that's just not the answer by itself. It's, it's more contextual in terms of what's a really good job. For sure. And and just to say quickly, like it's hard, right? Like it is hard to change to this strategy because it does require a higher degree of order of management of thinking. If you're thinking not about workers just as a cost, then you need to be thinking about all the ways to create value from and with workers. And so there is a... I don't want to signal in any way, as you're saying too, that it's easy. It's or or cheap, to be honest, right? Like it requires a degree of leadership, and um, I don't want to say faith, but but sort of long term thinking that gives you the space to make the investment upfront, make the strategic choices that need to be made, and then know that that leads to different outcomes that in the long term will create a resiliency that um, that, that you don't have by following the, the workers as cost road. That shift you're talking about um, makes me think about um, maybe your core purpose and just the, the sort of premise of everything in, in our view is that you're not doing this you're not pursuing um, purpose-driven business and stakeholder capitalism just because it's the right thing to do or it's the new set of tax social taxes you impose on a corporation in order to be perceived a certain way. But fundamentally, it actually is a better way of building a resilient, thriving business by understanding, attending to the diverse needs of your web of stakeholders. Uh, and I'm curious, a, do, do, do you agree with that? I'm assuming so, but I'd love, if, if not, I'd love to hear your thoughts. And then if so, how do, what are you seeing in business leaders? Because the, um, you mentioned the a business roundtable redefinition of corporate purpose came out in 2019. And a lot of them just kind of assumed they were already good actors. In reality, we're talking about some fundamental shifts and deeper commitments that were not being seen yet. And it's not so easy. And so do they view you as foe? Do they say, oh, are they waking up to the fact that this is actually a better path in the long term? It's hard, but actually, if you want to stay a leader in your category, this is the path to do it. Um, if you could talk about that, that'd be great. 
Yeah, I, I do agree, uh, unsurprisingly, with the with the first point um, that this is about building thriving enterprises, ultimately on the the business, uh, the sort of leaders, individuals, it, it's a it's an interesting question. I there have been there are sort of the luminaries. So Paul Pullman obviously comes to mind, the former CEO of Unilever, um, as as sort of one of those people. There are increasingly others too. I um, let me talk. I'll talk about two things. One is is sort of the current the current um, leaders that we talk to, and there are um, there is a growing recognition that the role of CEOs is shifting. And that's what our polling bears out in really significant ways. Like when we've just first started this conversation, I mentioned um, trust and like the trust gap, but actually folks see business leaders as as a source of trust. And our most recent, our most recent polling and Edelman just came out last week with their survey and business leaders are seen as one of the more trusted members of society, which is really something it's not, it's not a high bar at this point, but it's still significant. And we are seeing that through other ways um, that, that people do have this expectation that businesses are doing um, more for their stakeholders and, and can be trustworthy. And so I, I think that that folks who are at the top are experiencing that more and so trying to be responsive and outside of, um, you know, again, like a Dan Schulman, um, who who I think is, is just sort of uh, creative and intuitively just doing really like really pushing forward. There are also a lot who are really working through and trying to understand like what it actually means and are honestly kind of uncomfortable with it based on the history and what expectations used to be of business leaders, um, which leads me to the other point. A few years ago, someone told me that the the most oversubscribed class at Harvard Business School was a class is a class called Reimagining Capitalism and at MIT was the good job strategy, which is the Xanopton. I'm not sure if that's true anymore. It was anecdotal at the time. So like maybe I shouldn't even be saying it, but but the underlying point is that students today are gravitating towards like business students are gravitating towards those sorts of questions in their education. And so while sort of today's leaders are grappling with this, I firmly believe that the folks who are coming behind are far more sensitive and sort of learning in real time what those trade-offs are and how to be thinking about it. So it's a little bit of both, um, but but I, I don't think like I don't think that we're about to swerve back to sort of the Milton Friedman maximizing profit. Like I think we have a generation at least of of increasingly um, you know challenging societal issues, right? Like like this is these are not easy times to be leading in any context. And so um, the people who are raising their hands, who are hyper competitive, who you know want to be seen as leaders, are also the ones who are really sensitive to the to the world and to the economy in which they're operating. And so I think it's natural to see that progression and sort of more thoughtfulness around how to actually do it in ways that that are positively impacting stakeholders. You know, we're asking a lot of just like pick your brain kind of questions around the space. And I think what we didn't get a chance to do where we started to just hear a little bit more about like um, what brought you into this. And, you know, this is not easy work. Um, and I could imagine that some of this work um, can take a trajectory where it feels like 
there's no hope here, you know? So I'm just curious, like what, what lifts your passion? Like what, what keeps you passionate about this and what are the things that keep you hopeful? Um, I know you just talked about, you know, potentially this, this next growing generation, but what else is like, you know, gets you to this place where you're like, yes. I, um, you know, I describe myself as someone who's like, I don't know if this is appropriate, but like fatalistically op optimistic where I sort of feel like it's scary, right? Like I'm a little scared by the cli like climate change and how um, growing inequality and, and what that means. And so I, I come at it from a place of this has to change. Like we have to be creating an environment that allows folks who are trying to do the right thing to do the right thing. And, and I, and I also believe that most people want to do the right thing and that there are many constraints that keep them from doing that. And that one of the ways to change is to be changing what, um, success means that it includes financials, but it's not the only reason, but that, um, that that people like I have this sort of story of like, you know, sometimes when people ask me like what, you know, how will I know um, if, if we were successful, like, you know, five years down the line, 10 years down the line, like I imagine a dinner party with a bunch of CEOs and like Bob walks into the room and everyone's like, who invited Bob? Like who invited Bob? Right. Like he doesn't pay his workers well, like his, you know, he just had another oil spill or whatever, like like that there is this concept of like like, you know, get, get this guy out of there. Right. And so like that to me is, is why I, I do the work is that I do believe that we can have a higher set of expectations associated with what business does for our society and for the economy. And, you know, there's this concept that's more commonly used in environmental frame, but it's, it's called the social license to operate. And it's that, you know, we, the people, create capitalism like like the trust that we put and democracy like and you know both, both of those things a healthy democracy and a healthy healthy capitalism go hand in hand but that we the people create an environment in which um you know we businesses are able to use resources humans and environmental and others um and our expectation is that that they are part of society right that they are like part of the solutions and what it means to be creating an inclusive good economy environment for the most number of people and so um so so that's sort of what i believe in why i keep doing the work and i think that um that one way that keeps me optimistic is is realizing and sort of um understanding that that most people do want to do the right thing and that we just need to work a lot harder to um, get to yes and that there is also a role for the activism and sort of outside pressures but that we simultaneously need to be working directly with folks who are who are you know who see their workers as a as a value that um, that recognize that having relationships and sort of emp both empowering and strengthening the communities in which they operate is an important part of creating a healthy business environment for themselves. So so that's like that's where that's where I land on this. But it, it also does come from a place of fear of like believing that if we don't get this stuff right in the next generation, we're going to be in a much, much worse place.
Well, I definitely think there's something to be said about, you know, coming from an imperative, um, but then being able to come from some place of like uh, hope to invite folks into something different, which is which is for sure. Um, if I can just like so much, I feel like of what we've been learning on this podcast is not so much what people do, but how they're learning about what they're doing. Because, I mean, you even just gave the story about, um, you know, PayPal and how a question was asked and it was like, oh, I had to learn that there was something else there. And that puts them on a learning journey with what they're doing. So I'm just going to bring this back to you. Um, rather than making this about just capital, what, what would you say in the last, let's just say six months or a year has been your biggest learning um, as you've been engaging in all this work? Six months to a year. Um, see, can we do two years of the pandemic? Cause I feel like yes. that's, that's like, like no time and all the time, but that's how I can now <laughs> measure time. <laughs> um, beginning of the pandemic. I mean, I think, um, I'm really my personal motivation in addition to what everything we just talked about is 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 believing in in that everyone should have work with dignity. And I think that it's not a learning but but I do I'm seeing um this idea that 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 people are not robots and machines and that there's value in that 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 if we can recognize that um having humans in these jobs but also that they're humans who have families and other constraints but if we can be um unlocking people's creativity you know their ability to bring their full selves to work that 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 is something worth doing and i feel like i've had these light bulb moments of believing that that's possible in the last couple of years that i don't know i fully had them previously of like i you know i, I thought it was but but having you know conversations and roundtables including michael the one we've been through but but with others of of of, of folks just seeing in a different way that um that that this is that that people having both the stability and opportunity, as you said, Chris, to thrive is, is like a, a role of business for a number of reasons. And I just think that that is clicking in, in ways that I'm not sure I would have, you know, dared hope for five years ago or 10 years ago. So, so that's, that's like, maybe not, maybe it's more, this is an answer more to your previous question, but, but like where, what gives me hope and, and where I do believe, um, where I do believe we're seeing changes is, is in that. You're learning what's what's possible. What are your, um, you know, looking into the crystal ball next handful of years, what do you think the next big area of shift might be? Well, stakeholder capitalism and um, is is like is evolving or I, I can't figure out what it actually is yet the connection to ESG, which is environmental, social and governance, investing it's primarily, but it's also becoming this catch all. And I think that um, the movement of you know, stakeholder capitalism to sort of what it means to be a leader on ESG will continue to move in one of two directions. The first direction is, you know, it goes back to um, the lip service as we were talking about is like the concern the other is that it goes in a way that really starts to into incentivize individual leadership moments so that we get to a place of like 
the baseline is much better than it is now because we've gotten consistent with measurements. We've started to see the incentive structure that encourages that level of disclosure and then that assessment. But then the step after that is like real leadership, right? Like, like where is the, the field going to go on issues like, um, you know, access to capital for low-income communities or, or um, communities of color, um, you know, uh, commitment to internal mobility, as I've mentioned a couple of times, to, to really ensure that, you know, X percentage of, of senior managers have been at the company for five years, are a person of color, you know, came from the front lines, like, like really starting to talk about um, where companies are, like the practical but really concrete examples of um, of leadership and of um, of accomplishment. So, so that's what like my hope is that I think the next step is that the floor becomes higher, and then the next step after that will be that the ceiling becomes higher. And like those aren't necessarily one after the next, but I think that generally that's where the field is going to go. And so, my hope is that that you know sort of coincides with okay, we're really looking for businesses to to impact these specific stakeholder you know communities in a moment where inequality and populism has become even worse in a moment where climate change has become more pronounced, et cetera. I have to imagine that leaders who are listening to this conversation want to know what your advice would be for them to start putting some of these concepts into practice. What should they be paying attention to, questions they should be asking, actions they should be taking? Yeah. You know, I alluded to this at the beginning, so um, and I appreciate being able to come back to it. I think the first step is to think about what the business, obviously the first step is to understand what their organizations are doing. You can go to our website, justcapital.com and start to measure that. But um, the, I think the first step is really to understand what the business purpose or, you know, maybe not to use a buzzy term, but like, what is the business trying to accomplish? What's in your own ethos? Um, and then what is an area of opportunity for leadership that is aligned with that? So, um, you know, if you're if you're a manufacturing company versus a retail, those are those are going to be different things or they may be different things. But but where, you know, pick one or two areas that feel like um, for, to your employees, for example, that they'll it'll feel connected. And so, you know, one of the biggest challenges we see often is that the CEO may say something, but the middle managers don't really get it and don't really move it through the full organization. And so it needs to be, you know, these 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 sort of areas of focus need to feel right for the full organization and then really spend spend time signaling to your stakeholders, including the public, that this is an area of focus, and then track it over time. Like really spend time on the measurement, the tracking, um, staffing it correctly, and thinking about it not as um, not as this thing that you do over here. A lot of a lot of the movement from CSR to sustainability to corporate philanthropy is now not what you do off to the side, but how is your business operating in a way that advances one or two concrete goals? And so that's the question. It's not, let me donate some money or, you know, let me create, um, uh, you know, and, you know, a few internships or whatever. It's really like this fundamental question. And so 
uh, connected to the business operational strategy? And so that's really the, the set of questions that, that um, someone should start asking. Thank you, Alison. This has been as great a conversation as we anticipated. I'm excited to follow up with you on a number of these aspects and potentially have you back on to just see how you're progressing and you know how, how uh, CEOs are continuing to mature and shift and how they think about their own role and responsibilities and what it means to lead a great company. So really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, no, thank you, Michael and Chris. I was a, I, you know, love these conversations. And, and as you can tell, it's um, such an area of opportunity, I, I believe. And so excited to, to have another conversation and see, see how, the, how we all evolve in this work. What a great conversation. I just feel like we could have kept going. I loved how we both were chomping at the bit to ask questions and I think stumbling over each other. Uh, but I think that's a, a sign of a really good, um, you know, great conversation and a great guest. And so I'd love to just talk through maybe some of our takeaways. Does that sound good to you? Yeah. What, what, uh, what jumped out at you, Chris? Um, you know, lots of different strands, but I would think I would start with this because it carried through the entire conversation. Um, and I would say just the importance of, you know, maybe coming from some kind of explicit framework. And it's clear that um, Allison and Just Capital comes from this framework. Um, I don't know if it's named necessarily, but like this idea that the purpose of business is, you know, maybe just to generate customers and create a profit. Um, and, and if that's your orientation, then you're going to tend to focus on maybe revenue generation and productivity and efficiency that returns, you know, agreeing to return to and a benefit to stakeholders, but it's really different. And they, it feels like they flipped it to really think through like the purpose of business is to realize a purpose. Um, and that enables your stakeholders to win. And so you might focus more on value creation. Um, and that generates revenue and profit as well. But, you know, I don't, they don't romanticize it. I think Allison was really straightforward with things. But the point is, knowing your framework that, just, that drives business decisions, and she gave great example, financial wellness initiative, seeing people as value creators versus a cost, seeing their financial well-being as having a mutual stake in the future success of the employee, the business, the community. So that to me like stuck out as a really important um, like first theme. Yeah, that resonated with me. The um, What also was interesting within that framework, there are lots of uh, pockets that they're going deep on, areas where you can get objective information and really start evaluating organizations on uh, on those dimensions, be it pay equity, et cetera. And this is going to be a moving target. There will always be kind of new areas that become uh, exposed and measurable and important to uh, various stakeholders. Uh, and what is what good and great looks like is going to be constantly shifting. Um, it also brings up uh, another interesting aspect of the work that Allison and Just Capital are doing, which is um, you know, uh, I've seen this in my work uh, on Charity Navigators Board in the nonprofit space, where ultimately you want to get to measuring objectively impact in the world. Uh, it's very challenging. It's kind of the holy grail and in many areas may be unachievable. The journey to get there is always starting with disclosure and transparency 
and checking the box of even an organization being willing to expose itself says something positive and often indicates that there are good things happening because they're willing to um, address pressures that might result in questions. Uh, but then you move on to objective key indicators that may not be the outcomes themselves, but they are things that actually are uh, quite measurable and meaningful and often have a very high correlation with impact, but aren't impact itself. And then in some areas, you're looking at actual impact. So it's just um, interesting to think about that as you laser in on very specific areas where you may actually be able to go further towards impact measurement uh, than some other areas. Yeah, I think there's a learning progression there for sure. And, um, and I, you know, I think she spoke to it. And again, um, I feel like it dovetails off of where we just came from. This isn't to romanticize anything. This is, this is a journey. And, you know, it's about starting from a place of either being forced to because of the, the, the shifts and dynamics to begin to make things transparent, or because you have a commitment and you want to engage in doing better, um, regardless of where that starts. But it, it, it is definitely, um, I think, uh, a journey, I would say, I heard her say that. And I definitely agree with what you're sharing here in terms of there's learning to be had, um, whether you're learning how to navigate this from a place of, okay, we're going to have to, I don't want to think poorly about organizations, but if they're feeling forced to, they have to learn how to navigate that. If organizations want to do right and eventually get to the kind of impact you're talking about, they still have a lot of learning to do um, around what this looks like. So I love that. Yeah, that, I mean, that speaks to, um, in some ways, the, the, the function or role that organizations like Just Capital play in the ecosystem. I think they're, they're vital for driving progress, but they also um, can only do so much. And, and what you were just saying makes me think about two dimensions that they're really good at and also one sort of limitation. Um, one is what I'll call like sea level. Like they are helpful in driving up uh, the sea level for what decent enough organizations look like. If you're gonna actually um, just function and compete with your peers and deliver on baseline expectations, what does that look like and how well are you doing? And that is a moving target, hopefully rising up over time. Uh, and they can they play an important function in defining that and then evaluating people. And then also secondly, calling out the leaders, those who are way ahead and pioneering and demonstrating really, really strong commitment and uh, innovation in driving progress and holding themselves accountable. What they're not necessarily great at and shouldn't be is being the sole source for measurement of any given individual organization's progress, because that's going to be so rooted in that organization's stated purpose, the ecosystem it operates in, uh, and the competitive environment that it operates in. Um, and so I consider this an important component, what Just Capital is doing, but a leader needs to really think about their own measurement system that goes beyond what any organization on the outside is going to be defining as metrics. Oh, for sure. Um, and, and I, you know, I think we're going to get into this. It's kind of a theme throughout some of our sessions already, but we're going to get into it even further with our next guest. But the importance of um, and this idea that there's no one organization that can do it all. And I don't think that Just Capital would say that. Um, but the importance then of understanding your stakeholder ecosystem, understanding what is the value and impact that we're trying to create in this world and who are the folks that we really want to partner with. Um, but they're making such great strides. I mean, I, I would imagine 
you know, where Allison talked about like five some odd years ago, where maybe they're putting out information and trying to drive a spotlight on something. And now like that spotlight is growing and I'm sure the partnerships are growing. And so how do they actually not just work as an organization to think about impact, but work as maybe a movement and as a collective um, to learn from each other and, and really think about like, you know, the direction that not easy work at all, but like what that paints is a, a really powerful picture of um, individual leadership learning, organizational learning, and then like cross organizational industry learning. Um, it, it was a really great, or it was a great, great conversation. I think we could probably do another session with her, don't you? No, it'd be great to have her back on. Yeah, uh, I got a lot out of it. And, um, and it's inspiring because all of her efforts and progress sort of correlate with the uh, maturity of the space. You need organizations that are shining a light, that are defining the bars and, and encouraging accountability uh, as a mechanism for, for just driving overall health and progress, so uh, important function. Um, yeah, and all of this is going to help shape our future conversations well, so look forward on, to building on this together. Chris, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me on this journey. I am learning a lot. I am looking forward to the next session, Michael. The Hunt for the How is a production of Intentional Futures, a strategy and design studio based in Seattle, Washington. This episode was produced and mixed by Gedney Barclay, who also created the original music. Our lead researcher and production assistant is Malia Nakamura, and I'm your host, Michael Dix. I encourage you to email me with any thoughts and questions to michael at intentionalfutures.com. You can subscribe to The Hunt for the How on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iTunes. Thanks for listening.